Well, I wish you a good morning. It's very good to be back with you. I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 13 in your Bible. If you have a Bible with you, uh, just the very beginning of Luke chapter 13. If, uh, if you're just joining Prairie Hill, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke, passage by passage. So we're about halfway. Luke has 24 chapters. We're done with chapter 12. Um, we're trying, as we go, we're trying to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God like? So we're learning about the kingdom of God. That's the big picture theme. So we've made it to Luke chapter 13 today. The text is verses one through nine. If you're not a believer in Jesus, there's a really, really good chance that you're gonna find what he says today in this text deeply offensive. His words go to the heart of who you are. His words lay an obligation on you. And they also speak to your, to your future. There probably aren't too many things that would be considered more offensive than what Jesus is going to bring to you today in this text. We're going to do some work here this morning to try and understand what he's saying. And I want to invite you to consider what he is saying and what it says about our lives. The context here is Jesus having an interaction with a group of people. It's a group of people that have a bit of news that they want to share with him. Isn't that interesting to think about finite people not knowing that they're talking with God in the flesh and sharing with him something that they think is news to him? So Jesus receives the bit of news from them And then he does some correction and redirection. And that's what we're here to receive this morning, correction and redirection, okay? Now, I don't know if that's what you signed on for when you decided to come to church this morning, but that's what we get when we sit under the teaching of Jesus Christ, Son of God. If you're able to stand this morning, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Uh, This is Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, For three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, till I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. All right, please be seated. Well, we're, we're in a section of Luke's gospel where there's actually a lot of 
correction and redirection going on. Twice in the passage that we just read, Jesus addresses the crowd with, do you think? It's in verse two and in verse four. We see the same words back in chapter 12, verse 51, this passage we talked about a couple weeks ago. If you look back at your copy of the um, Gospel of Luke, back at 1251, you see the same thing. Do you think? Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. See, same thing, same sequence of words. He's correcting their thoughts. He's, he's correcting the prevailing sentiment that he came to give peace on earth. We have something of the same kind going on here. Different conversation, different group of people, but Jesus has the same goal. Correcting wrong thoughts. Correcting wrong perspectives. Correcting the prevailing sentiment. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? No, I tell you. Do you think that those on whom the tower fell were worse offenders? No, I tell you. Back in chapter 12, Jesus was correcting the prevailing notion that his presence on earth meant immediate peace. See, that's what what they thought. That's what the disciples thought, that his presence on earth meant immediate peace, and he had to correct them. Here in chapter 13, in this conversation, he's correcting a different notion. What notion is that? He's correcting the notion that tragic or untimely death was God's judgment on their sin. Correcting the notion that if someone dies tragically or what we would call an untimely death, that that means that that person was unusually guilty and that their tragic death was God's judgment on their sin. That was the popular notion at the time. You know, wow, if those 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam, on whom the tower fell, those 18 must have had some kind of secret sin in their lives that maybe no one else knew about, but God knew about it. So when they were under the tower, the tower fell on them, and that was God's judgment on their sin. So I suppose they got what was coming to them. Jesus says, no. They weren't worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. That's not the true evaluation of this event. And regarding the first situation, the one that the people actually bring up to Jesus about the Galileans, the Galileans, people from that northern part of the country whose blood was mixed with their sacrifices by Pilate, we don't know what event that refers to in particular. It's not in any of the extra-biblical accounts We're just speculating on what might have happened. Seems likely that there was a group of Galileans who went south to offer sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. So they were pilgrims to Jerusalem, probably, and while they were there, there was apparently some kind of violence, maybe perpetrated by Rome, maybe not. Pilate, of course, is the Roman governor. Whatever the case was, these people apparently died, and Pilate included their blood, the blood of these Galileans who died, and he included it in the sacrifices being offered at the temple during the festival that they were there for. 
Maybe he did that as a show of power. Maybe he did it as a warning against causing a disruption. We don't know. The point, it's not really the point to get all the details correct. The point is they didn't suffer in this unique way because they had a unique load of sin. They weren't singled out by God for this tragedy because of their greater sinfulness. Now, that's what this group of people would have thought was true. Their perspective probably would have been they got what was coming to them. Jesus says, no, that's wrong. Is that what you think? Do you think this? No. Okay, there's the correction. No. Then he gives the redirection. And he redirects them to three things. He redirects them to the universal, to the personal, and to the eternal. And I'll go through those again in in just a minute. We'll say something about each of those. You don't have to remember those right now. But he's redirecting them to what is universal and what is personal and what is eternal. Because, see, their perspective on these things, these what we would call tragedies, is very detached And it's very particular. Hey, this group of people died over here. They probably got what was coming to them. That's tragic, but you know, one really has to make better choices than what they made. And I suppose that the rest of us, we are all doing okay because we have managed to avoid this incredible judgment that God has brought down on those people. So we may not be perfect, but we're at least better than them. Because we didn't die at the hands of the Romans. We didn't have a tower fall on us. See, that's a very detached perspective. It's also a very judgmental perspective. See, it almost leaves you with a greater sense of personal security. If I've survived, nothing like that has befallen me. I must be one of the good guys. I'm on God's good side. And you see how that kind of thinking promotes a feeling of greater security for oneself. Now, here's the problem. Jesus knows that that's not the true assessment of these things. He knows that it's perilous for any human being to stand there with their own sin load, however great it is, with a sense of security before God. And so he just annihilates their false sense of security. And before we look at how he does that, I just want to put the question to you, put this question to you in in particular. Do you feel like your soul is secure? Do you feel like your soul is secure before God? And if you do, what is the basis for that feeling? Why do you think so? One possibility is that you don't believe in life after death. So it's not even a question that concerns you because nothing's going to happen. What are you talking about? A soul being before God after we die? So you, you've checked out from this conversation. That's one possibility. One possibility is that you think your good deeds outnumber your bad deeds. 
And upon that basis, you feel like your soul is secure before God. Another possibility is you feel like everyone is secure before God. There's no, no need to evaluate any one person's tabulation of, of right and wrong, good and bad. God loves everyone. Everyone's okay. That could be your perspective. There's other possibilities as well. I'm just asking you to, you to consider yourself and consider the possibility that you may have a false sense of security. That what you think is true is actually built on wrong notions. And that you may need correction and redirection, which is what we get here today. I mentioned a moment ago that this crowd is viewing these events in a very detached way, very impersonal way, but Jesus redirects them and points them and points us to the the universal and to the personal and to the eternal. Let's just notice each of those three, how he does that. He does point them to the universal. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See the word all? That's the universal element here. You will all likewise perish. Everyone has a sin debt before God. These Galileans weren't worse sinners. You're all carrying the same load, the same backpack of sin is on your back. All humans carry an infinite weight of sin against God. One turn away from God carries an infinite weight of evil. And we all carry it, me included, you included. That's the universal element he points them to. He points them also to the personal. He uses the word you, unless you repent. See, they want to talk about those other people. He turns it right back around upon them. You. There's a problem with you. You're thinking about the problem with them. Don't you realize there's a problem with you? He makes it personal. We're going to see him do the exact same thing two weeks from now when we we get over to verse 22. Later in chapter 13, people are going to come to him with another concern. People are going to come to Jesus worried about how many people are going to be saved. Isn't that a, isn't that a great question that we would, we'd ask the same question today. They want to know, will the, number of the, will the number of the saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? They want to know how many people in the end will be saved. That's what they want to know. That's their concern. We're going to see Jesus direct it right back to them. He's going to redirect their thoughts back to themselves and the question of you. And we'll save that discussion for two weeks from now. But I just want to, I want to say this, and I want to ask you this as you think about yourself. Do you have questions for God? I hope you do. Do you see things happening around you in the world that cause concern for you? And you're trying to understand where, where is God in this and how is he working in this. I hope you have those things that you're thinking about too. Would you like to know more about how God works in the world, about suffering and about death, about sin and about salvation? Those are the deepest and greatest things that we can look into 
And we should look into these things. But here's, here's the warning. Be prepared. When you take those questions to God and you want to ask him about those things, it's very likely that the question will be turned back upon you. That you will be questioned about your ways. It's very likely that as you attempt to sit in judgment of God and his ways, that you will be redirected and reminded that it is God who sits in judgment of you in your ways. That's part of what it means to be God. He is creator. We are creature. We are morally fallen. He is pure. It's not that God doesn't want to entertain our questions. It's that we are in no way prepared to receive an answer if we do not have a humble and repentant heart. If we come to God with our questions without a humble and repentant heart, we will sit in judgment of his answer instead of receiving his answer. Well, what's happening? What's happening here? People had something they wanted to talk about. Jesus is talking with them about their own sin debt, their need to examine themselves. He points them to the universal, points them to the personal. He trains the question back upon them. He also points them to the eternal. He talks about the possibility of perishing. Now, that's an old word. We don't use that word anymore. Someone dies, we don't say that they perished. One thing that it's helpful to know is that that word has always meant much more than death. The English word perish is used to translate a Greek word that means eternal destruction, eternal death. Sometimes in the New Testament, you just read the word died. There's an ordinary run-of-the-mill word in Greek for died. Sometimes you'll read perish. Sometimes died, sometimes perish. That's not stylistic variation. That's not just people trying to use a different word in order to keep people interested in what's going on. They mean different things. This Greek word refers to an eternal death or eternal destruction, and we translate that word in English as perish. It's the word that we find at John 3.16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Right? John 3.16 doesn't promise that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll never die. We know that's not true. Everybody dies. The promise is that you will not perish. Die forever die eternally. The great hope provided in the gospel is not avoiding physical death. That's coming to us all. The great hope of the gospel is to avoid perishing, experiencing after death a physical, forever, 
destruction, apart from the presence of God, in an environment that the Bible calls hell. That possibility, perishing, is what Jesus redirects his listeners to in this passage that we're in. In effect, he tells them there's a greater tragedy to be concerned about, something greater than a tower falling on and killing a person. Let me say something about the idea of tragedy from God's perspective because we want to be careful here not to present God the Father or God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, not to present God. We don't want to present God as lacking compassion or love because he redirects his listeners to a greater tragedy than the tower or the one, the Galileans. It's not that Jesus is dismissive of the loss of life. It's not that Christ lacks compassion and love. It's not that God is cold and indifferent toward these deaths. We know that God is not indifferent toward death. God gave the most valuable thing that he had to destroy death. God hates death everywhere, always, forever. We we can't read indifference into Jesus' words here. Because he doesn't enter into the sympathy and talk about, yeah, that was really horrible. He doesn't weep with them over the tragedy because they want to talk about tragedy and there's this tower that fell in Siloam and 18 people died and that is tragic. But we don't find Jesus weeping here. He's not entering into that. It's not because he's cold and indifferent and lacks compassion. It's that from God's perspective, there's something more tragic than what we would call untimely or tragic death. Now, 99% of the people have just checked out because almost no one believes that. Ask almost anyone in the, in the metro area, is there anything more tragic than untimely death? Probably, no. What could be more tragic than untimely death? There's nothing after you die. If someone dies young, that's it. What could be more tragic than that? But from God's perspective, from the true perspective, there is a greater tragedy than physical death. Even untimely physical death. That greater tragedy is eternal death. Eternal destruction apart from God. It's a greater tragedy because it's eternal. And because it's avoidable. Death is not avoidable. Perishing is avoidable. That's why it's the true tragedy. That's why Jesus redirects to it. Because his listeners, with their sin debt, face a future destruction that can be avoided and can be replaced with an alternate destiny of life and joy. We're now entering into the fun window of the sermon. 
It's really hard for us to imagine because all this talk about perishing, all this talk about death, what's the alternative? What are we talking about anyway? What are you presenting as the alternative to this horrible situation? I think it's really hard for us to get any kind of an idea about what an eternity in heaven with God will be like. This is the best I can do, okay? With the time I had this week, this is the best I can do to approach the feeling of what it will feel like to be part of that alternate eternity of life and hope. Do you remember what the last day of school feels like? The clock is ticking towards three and four. And out there in front of you is this huge expanse of this wonderful thing called summer. And all of the constraints are gone. Think about it. Think about what a great analogy, I think that is, for how all of our sin, these bonds of sin that hold us in this life are gone. It's like... The schedule and the homework and the nagging is over and it's three months of whatever. That feeling and the longing for that day to come and then it's three and then it's four and then we're out and we enter in and there's music and there's people and there's fun and there's hope. I hope you had at least one day like that in your childhood or that it's coming for you, okay? I'm not going for accuracy of details. It's not a perfect analogy. I'm going for accuracy of feeling. The feeling of being set loose from former constraints, longing for it to come, and then it comes, then all this joy. And that's the feeling. Only multiply by infinity and every day forever. And God is there. You ever long to see God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, immediate presence. Who you were created to be with. Meeting the one who created you. Fellowshipping with the one who redeemed you. And with a a gift and a future so good. And with an alternate experience so tragic. Jesus has to redirect them. He has to. Now it all hinges on this word repent. The difference between those two things, everything hinges on this word repent, unless you repent. It's the word that everything hangs on. Let's finish this, shall we? I want to say something about repentance. I want to say something about how the tree, the fig tree, pictures your condition if you have not repented. And I want to say something about how Jesus preaches. That's it. 
Something about repentance. It's the key word. It's the word that makes all the difference. Did you know that there could be something that's more important than life and death? That's the phrase that we use, right? When something is really important, we say, it's a matter of life and death. Did you know there's something, there's another category beyond that? This is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. The most important thing. Period. There's nothing more important than what we're talking about right now, and the key idea is repentance. Now, this is not a sermon on the nature of repentance. This is a sermon on the necessity of repentance. That's the thing that Jesus emphasizes. Is not tell us anything about the nature of repentance. It's all about the necessity of repenting. If we want to know about the nature of repentance, Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, is a much better place to learn about what repentance looks like in practice. And we'll be there shortly. And we're not talking about the nature of repentance today, but we have to say something about it because it's the critical thing here. So what is it? What's required? Repentance means to turn. To turn from what to what? To turn from self to God. When humans first sinned, we did the reverse. We turned from God to self. We wanted to be God. We wanted to decide right from wrong on our own. So we dethroned God and we enthroned self. We said, I will decide right and wrong, thank you very much. I will decide what's moral and what's not moral. I don't need you. And you say, well, you know, I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. That's not my fault that they did that. Adam and Eve may have done that. Well, let me ask you. Let me, I know for sure. You have done it yourself also. Just look at your own heart. Who's judging who in your world? Is God judging you or are you sitting in judgment of God? Who in your life is deciding what's moral and what's immoral? Are you receiving from God what's moral or, and immoral or are you telling the world what's moral and what's immoral? Are you making those calls? Who's being worshipped in your life? Is God being worshipped? Or everywhere always are you worshipping yourself? That's what it looks like to have turned away from God. We've all done it. We've done it as a race and we've done it individually. For you to repent would look like this there would be a conviction in your soul that would lead you to say, Father, I have been wrong. You are right. I have been sitting in judgment of you. You are judge over me. I turn today from my self-dependence and my self-exaltation back to you to say, I am dependent on you. You are exalted over me. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. Receive me, even though I'm unworthy. When you do that, when you repent, God receives you. This is the critical point. 
God does not receive you and forgive you because he's a softy. God receives you and forgives you because he has provided a just grounds for you to return to him. He's put his son to death in your place for your sins. So your sins have been paid for. They weren't overlooked. See, there's a just grounds upon which he receives you back. It remains for you to stake your claim to the cross. And say to God, when you turn, my sins have been paid for by your son. I believe it. There's no turning to God without embracing the cross. The cross is the only grounds upon which God receives the sinner. That's why Jesus makes all the difference. Unless you make that switch, unless you make that turn, unless you have that conviction in your soul and turn back to God, you will perish. The whole point of the parable of the fig tree is to show that an unrepentant person is like an unproductive tree. There comes a time when the unproductive tree is cut down and it's too late to bear any fruit. And if you have not repented before God, this tree represents you. That's why Jesus told the parable. He gives us a picture of what it's like to not be in a state of repentance. You've got an obligation to the one who owns the world you live in to bear the fruit that he requires, but to this point, you have not. You have not produced the fruit of repentance. You ask yourself the question, well, then why am I still alive? Why has God allowed me to live so long? Why hasn't he judged me immediately for my sin and for rejecting him for my whole life? Why should I still be alive? Why should I still have the opportunity? Because the owner of this vineyard that you're living in is patient and grace, gracious, unfathomably patient and gracious, beyond all expectation. What possible expectation could the owner of the vineyard have that in the fourth year this tree would produce fruit when it's been well-tended and done nothing, and yet he waits? That's the window that you're in. But the day has been appointed for the tree to be cut down and then it will be too late. And a day has been appointed for you, and then it will be too late. But this is the time of grace. The last thing that I want to say is something about Jesus preaching, something about his method. Repentance, perishing, hell, these are very old-fashioned things that we don't like to talk about anymore. In the picture in your mind that you probably have when someone says, okay, thought exercise, picture what it looks like for a person to preach about repentance and hell and perishing. What picture comes into your mind? You probably have the picture of some big guy with a red face yelling from a pulpit, banging on the pulpit, getting all up in your business or on the street corner. Fire and brimstone. 
just want to invite you to look for a moment at Jesus here. His harsh words, his strongest rebukes were for the religious people. But look at him here. He's not trying to sell anything. He's not playing on your emotions. He's not yelling, presumably. He's not manipulating. He's not working up the crowd. You know, when when heaven and hell are at stake, when we're talking about something more important than life and death, most preachers, including myself on most days, feel like a certain amount of emotion and urgency that's visible and audible is appropriate to the occasion because of the seriousness of the topic and the urgency of the topic. But I'm not, I'm not coming at you with that today because Jesus is not coming at you with that. Truth needs no bolstering. Truth needs no augmentation. Truth needs no manipulation in order to convince. What truth requires is an open and clear statement. And that's exactly what we have here. And I just want to invite you to notice that Jesus puts it to you so clearly and simply to you that we're going to leave it right here. No manipulation, no selling. Hear the word of God. Unless you repent, you will perish. Amen. Father, I thank you that Jesus was not a salesman. And thank you also that he was not a, a sympathizer in the negative sense of the term. It would have been very easy and very human just to enter into a sympathetic discussion with these people about the tragic nature of untimely death, and yet he sees beyond to the more important and more crucial thing. How mankind is... Every one of us loaded with this sin debt that we can do nothing about on our own, but that he has done everything for. And in a turning to him, there is life. I thank you that he didn't hold back from making an open, clear statement of the plain, powerful truth. I pray that you would attend the preaching of the truth with power. Your saving power today. Thank you for the joy of looking into these things. In Jesus' name, amen.